1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you a, uh, about a project, new project that launched last week. It's called The Last Column. It's a uh, book and digital campaign that highlights the human cost of reporting the news. Uh, the Last Column book, which came out last week, features the 24 final works of journalists killed in the service of news gathering. Uh, Daniel Pearl of The Wall Street Journal, Marie Colvin of The Sunday Times of London... Jamal Khashoggi of the Washington Post. Uh, There are 24 works in the book and then a bunch of things that uh, are in addition to the book. There's a mini documentary, a bunch of live events, uh, some educational content that raises awareness of CPJ's work. Go check it out. It's uh, thelastcolumn.com. Thelastcolumn.com. It is a very worthwhile project and worth your time. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome
2: to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Here is Aaron Lammer. Here is Max
1: Linsky. Hi. Hey, you guys. How's everyone? I'm well. I'm doing well. you have feel... to go for a weekend away. I am. I feel well. I'm rested. And I feel good. It's a beautiful day outside. <laughs> not, a, not much of a podcasting day. Who's on the show? Today on the show, I talked to Kiese Lehman, who
2: uh had one of the uh biggest books out last year and when i say biggest uh i mean it was on every single list of the best books of the year it's called heavy it's a memoir he also had an essay collection a few years ago which i highly recommend as well called how to slowly kill yourself and others in america if you look back in the long form archives there are old gawker stories that he wrote there are ESPN stories that he wrote. That, uh, um,
1: that ESPN Ole Miss story is, is uh, one of my all-time favorite sports yeah, stories. a really good story.
2: I will say, I, this is a recommendation I've never given on this podcast, but I would say, I feel like if Americans, if like all Americans had to read Heavy, his most recent memoir, and actually like reflect on it, it would, our country would be a better place. That's,
1: that's the nature of that book is that can can they, they put that on the paperback blurb now <laughs> Yeah,
2: i don't know if i've got of celebrity <laughs> like the credibility for
1: that i uh i uh that was the most blurby thing yeah. you've ever i've ever heard actually come out of your mouth is there some potential that evan is just fishing for blurbs yeah <laughs> is this like an oprah thing where you put the blurbs into the universe and the blurbs come back to you for your paperback release <laughs> bob bobbing for blurbs Uh, if you are bobbing for blurbs, no better way to do it than when with an email newsletter from MailChimp, you send out some blurbs. Other people blurb your newsletter and their, uh, their newsletter. I don't really know where that was going, but, uh, it's a great idea. It's a great way to promote your book. It's a great way to promote your project and, uh, you don't even have to pay up until you get a certain number of subscribers. So thanks to MailChimp. Yeah. Thanks also to MailChimp. They, uh, sponsored our live show that we did for Evan's book, The Mastermind. Out now. Out Thank now. You, Lots of great blurbs on that one, too. Uh, thanks, Mailchimp. Here is Evan with Kiese Lemon.
2: Kiese, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> thanks for coming. All right. So I'm going to start this. I'm going to tell you a little story, okay. which is that I've been reading and digesting a lot of your work, uh-huh. as I was talking about before I listened to Heavy, the audiobook, last year. And then, you know, reading old essays, uh-huh. reading other books, everything. And so I've been very immersed in your work and thinking about a lot, thinking about what we're going to talk about. And I was taking my daughter to daycare this mm-hmm. morning, walking down the street. I'm going to show you this. I walked by a lamppost. Right. Look at this. What the? It's a lamppost with a picture, your author photo, cut out and taped to the lamppost. I can find no uh, real explanation for why this happened. What's the other stuff taped on there? This you know? is, so I took a picture of that too. That's a dog, a missing dog flyer. <laughs> but, but that's been there for months. <laughs> <laughs> and someone oh, attached this photo. Dude, that's crazy. It did get me thinking about, I mean, this book, wow. Heavy, has like, I mean, I've seen it everywhere. I've seen yeah. it on every list. I've seen it winning awards, you name it. And I'm interested in what your life is like right now versus what you expected it to be when you sat down to write that book. Like Great did you at some level experience imagine experiencing this? I mean, your picture being a lamppost is maybe a little bit random, right? But maybe it's emblematic of something.
3: It's strange. You nah I mean I I kind of expected people from home home to appreciate it. Yeah. You know, appreciate it as something to work with. And and there you know, there's some people out there I consider mentors who I really wanted to dig it but somehow I never imagined just like lots and lots of folks reading this thing, man. Like, and I, thankfully I think I didn't imagine it. Cause it's strange, but it's good. You know, I'm glad, you know, much more people than we thought are filling the book. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, people who read and write for a living have found value in the, in the, in the art object, but it's strange, bro. Like I'm a very, I mean, I'm strangely a very private person <laughs> You know, I just want my work. I wish my work could walk to all of this shit. I wish my work could come up in here and do this podcast. Uh, You know what I'm saying? As opposed to me. Like, that picture is just weird, fam. What you just showed me. That picture, like, on a... Because I'm I'm in New York a lot, but I think I intentionally don't understand New York. I don't know how to ride the subway. I get lost walking two, three, four blocks. So, like, just seeing that picture you just showed me on a light post in some random neighborhood, that's crazy. Crazy, crazy. So, yeah, it's it's definitely different than I thought but you can't complain ever yeah. about people like wanting to
2: read and feel your work and I mean part of that is the content especially of heavy but but also your other work yeah it's it's very personal and that was kind of going to be my question is if you had really thought through the audience that it yeah. would reach do you think you would have written a different book
3: I mean I wrote a different book right like I, I mean you know that's that's like the third book you know it was like probably the 21st draft that y'all finally saw but it's like the third book and the first book was gonna be neater um it's gonna focus on my my mom and my grandmother and my auntie a bit more and then i just thought like you know i'm from mississippi i wanted to do something that was really bluesy and sort of like meta-ish but yeah if i knew i mean i yeah i still wish i could revise this book one more time because i I didn't get it, man. I didn't get it all the way right. If I had just like another month, I could have got that thing all the way right.
2: What do what you What do you think
3: was missing? Well, the the end, the the last section, just tonally, like I'm trying to do a whole bunch of stuff in that book, like with tonal shifts. In that last section, I wanted to be much more like expository, like traditionally essayistic. Like you know, I'm making like proclamations and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't find like I'm big on repetition. I didn't like find like the thing to repeat in the last section. The last section. Sort is of like where the book sort of like you know bills and bills and bills yeah. and bills and bills to that section. So just tonally, like I feel like I hit some of those other sections a lot better than I did that last section. But I the last you know the last last part bend I feel like can make people forget <laughs> that the final chapter chapter really isn't that good. <laughs> I mean it's true you know you can recover like a bad fourth of a book with like a really good five pages, you know what I'm saying? So
2: Yeah, but you're I mean you're also the only person who who sees that. Like I don't, I don't think anyone's I don't know, seeing that. I think some people see
3: but you know, this is the thing about writing about this kind of stuff too. I I wonder sometimes if people are like reluctant to really tell me what they think doesn't work because it looks like it was a book that was like was hard. Mm. And it looks like you know, people are always like, oh you're telling us so much and you're being so vulnerable. So there's a part of me that wonders if people have been reluctant to critique the book structurally because of some of that. But anyway, there's just some holes in it that I see and I'm going to work on that and I'm hopefully I can get it right in my next thing. I just want to create a book one day where I'm just like, yo, that shit is fresh as fuck. Like the whole joint. I don't need to go back. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about anything. I've never felt that way about it. I felt that way about one piece of writing. It was this piece of writing the Ox American asked me to do on Outcast and it was the only piece of writing. And I think, I'm like, all right, that's done. You know, whenever I read it, I
2: read it the same way. But other than that, I'm always, like, revising, wishing I had a little bit more time. Well, that uh, that takes me back to the book itself and how you talk about revision. I mean, there's this theme of revision. Yeah. And you learning that from your mom at right. this young age, that that was a requirement in your household. That was it. Yeah. I mean,
3: at least writerly revision and <laughs> and, I guess, behavioral revision in a way, but... But yeah, like the writerly revision, I mean, you know, she tried to teach me that for years. And when I finally got it, got it, it was just like, I don't know, it was like, it's like the first day you do a left hand layup. If you play ball like that day, you just remember that day for your whole life. I just remember looking at some sentences and then my mom had been telling me for years, you know, if you just rearrange the sentences using the same words, you get different meanings okay 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 and then one day I did it and I was just like oh shit like my mama was right and it just felt so cool fam to just like see the meaning of it change but all of the words are coming from you know hopefully some sort of soulful place but if you change like the construction you change the way they land too you know so I just got like obsessed with thinking about the way words and sentences can be conveyed to
2: like you know deflect or welcome or all of that kind of stuff but you're but the the reason behind your mom sort of pushing you with language, with revision, was, in some sense, it was for protection.
3: Oh, yeah, 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 and her mom, she thought I'd be less likely to get um, taken by <laughs> white supremacy, police, vice lords, folks, you know, these are gangs in Jackson. She thought all of that, you know, if I could be, if I was really good at reading and writing, and if I dressed <laughs> really clean, um, she thought everything would be alright but I didn't ever understand why she believed that but uh, I get it I get why she believed it now at the time it didn't make much sense still does not make much sense but I still understand why she needs to believe that as a mother of a child you know what I'm saying I don't have mm-hmm. kids but mm-hmm. shit, if I had kids I'm gonna try to convince myself via them that you know doing this will keep you safe even though I have to know I don't know if anything can really keep you
2: safe safe in this yeah. culture So when you, you, I mean, the book walks, I mean, it's a memoir basically, but it's, there's so many layers to it and so many aspects that I'm sure you've been asked about, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, but in terms of structurally the approach of it, it's written, it's not a letter, but it's written addressed to to your mother. And so, as I said, before we started, I'm like wary of asking you things you've been asked a lot of times, but I'm interested in that structural choice and, and at what point in the process you hit on that as the answer.
3: Yeah. So I written this first draft of this book, which was, again, pretty much riding my mother and my grandmother's voice through their experiences with food and weight and sexual violence. And, you know, for understandable reasons, they weren't telling the truth in our interviews and conversations. But, you know, I'm a writer, so like, you know, people's lives are sometimes much more interesting than the truth. But in writing and I still needed to show the reader that my parent and my grandparent were lying and then I was just like you know okay you can do that but what you aren't doing is you aren't talking about what you've been through you know you're using your people's experiences as like almost a fucking safari so then I was like let me go back and try to redo this book so then I wrote one section to my mom one section to my grandma one section to an imaginary daughter and one section to an ex-partner and of all of those sections, a section that was by far the richest and the hardest to write was a section to my mom, just because she taught me to write. She taught me how to protect myself. She taught me how to revise. And we just had the most amount of secrets. And like the degree of difficulty in those secrets was just like high. So at that point, I was like, I want to write a book to my mom. And I was really important for me that it wasn't a letter. You know, I, I like the epistolary form a lot, but I think. I wanted to push people to think about what it means to not read this as a letter written to somebody like dear Mama and you know, sincerely KSA or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted my mama and I, was, I wanted our relationship to actually be the center of this book. so at different times, you know i'm I'm the I, but the you and that space between the I and the u to me is the book mm-hmm. and and I felt like I could do that more if it wasn't like a uh, traditional uh, epistolary form. like I just feel like I could do it better if it was just like. There's a you in implied here, and this you is the center. This you is actually why I write. This you is why I lie and how I lie. So that's what I did, fam. Like, I just tried to. And also, you know, I've been judging a lot of like nonfiction memoir contests over the past three or four years. And I just wanted to try beyond trying to like repair a relationship that was like super crucial to me and talk to the world about it. I just wanted to try to write something in a form I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's really how it came about. And then my editor she was cool with you know like you know that's what really saved the day because she could have just been like nah this is not what we bought this is not what I wanted you to do I don't know if people are going to react to this this is very strange and she said the opposite you know she was like oh wow okay um just keep going (laughs) just keep going just keep going keep going and what did they bought what did they buy? Like, what, what was... They bought what uh, They bought a weight... I mean, they bought a weight loss book. It was called 309 Fat Black Memoir. Like, I was supposed to be losing 150 pounds while talking to my mom and my grandmom about their relationships with weight. So, I mean, it was an unhealthy book in the first place. I was going to lose 150 pounds in, like, a fucking... <laughs> I think, like, eight months or something. And it was going to be a failed weight loss book. That I knew that from the jump, and I thought that could be interesting. But, you know, I was trying to write that book. I thought people would, like as opposed to trying to write the book that I thought would, like, save my life and save my family and connect soulfully to a lot of people who I was afraid to connect soulfully to. I think that book would have sold, actually, a lot. But nothing would have been discovered in that shit. Nothing would
2: have been, you know, it would have been safe. Well, so much of the, I mean, there's so many aspects of the book, you know, reckoning with different aspects of your life or whether addiction or it's not really, whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it, whether it's weight loss or gambling or... But weight loss is one of the things that you actually, rec- It's sort yeah. of I- ironic that you were going to write a weight loss book. And then part of what's so compelling about the book you wrote is that it actually more directly addresses yeah. why.
3: right, right. I mean, I was going to have that. to do that in that book, but it would have lacked like just like a umph, like a soulfulness that I really wanted to get in there. You know, and that's the thing about for me writing to my mom is like. When you really write to people close to you, that means you don't have to say certain things, and it means you do have to say a lot more than you would if you were writing to, like, a stranger. Mm. And so I just really wanted to talk to her about, like, yeah, addiction, you know, weight loss, weight gain addiction. I'll talk to her straight up about, like, gambling addiction, which is you know really, like, not valuing the shit that you've earned and giving it all away so you can be in a much more precarious situation than you were in. Like, I needed to talk to her about all of that, but I was scared, and she was scared, and... You know, and I really needed to ask myself how all of the shit we've been going through connected us to the world because at our worst, I felt like it made us feel like we were alone. I think that's what happens to people when you in the in the depths of that shit, you feel like you're often super alone. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. With so many people filling the book, I've just been, you know, sadly and amazingly, like, shocked that so many people are dealing with, obviously, like now, like their own sorts of heaviness. Yeah. You know, even people who look super fit like you know want to talk to me about like their issues with weight and food and all of this stuff so
2: is that burdensome does that does that become burdensome? burdensome that's a good question um
3: see i want the answer to be no but i think yeah i think it's burdensome it's a little burdensome but i just feel like you know i'm in that place where where I'm from Mississippi. I'm, you know, one of the things we have is something called home training, meaning that like, you know, we're just nice, like, kind, <laughs> you know, but we're also kind of fucking evil as fuck. If you cross us or we think you crossed us, which makes living down there interesting. I mean, you know, you know, because you from Atlanta, but you know, like, Some part of me doesn't want to be like it's burdensome to go out and talk to people about a book like that's beyond first world problems. You know what I'm saying? That's like it's so burdensome that when I go outside, people want to talk to me about this art I fucking wrote. I don't want to be that dude. But right now, you know, my fucking body is tired as fuck. You know, I've been driving all these little towns in upstate New York and talking to people who assume they know me, which is wonderful. But yes, part of it is burdensome but it's mostly wonderful.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about your first sort of experiences with sort of public writing, because this incident at Millsaps College is one that comes up in the book and about you being a newspaper columnist. So talk a little bit about what it was that you were writing that got you in trouble at that time, Um, (laughs) at that place. Well,
3: I was 18, then I turned 19, and I was writing lots of satire that was like critiquing neo Confederacy traditional Old South stuff, K-A fraternity, Kappa Six, just the traditional, like, super wealthy sort of, like, Greek life that was new to me. Yeah. Like, you know, I had never been around that kind of stuff. I mean, my parents went to Jackson State University, so they. I was used to, like, Black Greek life, but not, like, that very, like, white, literally, like, plantation-type Greek life. And so I used my art to try to critique the influence that that greek life had on my college influence that greek life had on like the way people contorted their bodies influence that that greek life had on you know what women primarily were experiencing in a lot of those houses fraternity houses but it was like it was satire so like one you know i was playing with voice So one of the piece i wrote that got me like in trouble was uh I was acting like, you know, it says, while perusing, <laughs> I remember the line now, I'm not like a dickhead like this, but I remember, like, while perusing a quite engaging collection of layman's terms, I came across the word Millsaps or something. And so then I defined Millsaps by layman's terms, who was, you know, me. Yeah. So I was, I was, you know, 18, 19, big-headed, you know, but also just trying to play with form, dude, and, and critique what I saw as like an abuse of power that was institutionally sanctioned. You know, my president of my college was not a great leader, but he also was a member of one of the fraternities I was critiquing. And so, you know, those fraternities at the time, like the money they gave to this college kept the college going. It wasn't going to work out, bro. But I did not think I was going to get kicked out of school for uh, for what I got kicked out of school for. Yeah. You know, I knew I knew I was fighting. You know, I was in for a fight, but I was just like, we just going to have to keep fighting, but... <laughs> you know, I forgot along the way. I was like, you know, like, this is their school. Like, you can't, you're not going to win. You can't beat them at their school. They're going to kick you out. And ultimately, then they found an, uh, another pretext to, yeah, to they, do I it. I took in. a book, took uh, a red badge of courage out of the library and without checking it out and brought it back.
2: And they got me on tape, said so I stole a book, kicked me out of school. And what did you, so, I mean, there's, a, what did that tell you about using your writing to take I mean, on man, power man, that, that shit at that told me a time. lot of
3: stuff. But one thing it told me was that white folks were really scared mm. of, like, a 19-year-old who didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Like, that's what I thought was so crazy. I was like, yo, like, I'm just trying some shit, like, in a newspaper right now. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm experimenting like kids should at, you know, art at that age. And something I said made them feel, I mean... Yeah, I think they didn't like the fact that I was saying it because I think I went to a school. I know now I went to a school where, you know, if you were black and from Jackson, or you were black, period, like you were supposed to just be happy to be there. You know what I'm saying? Just happy to be there, get your grades, play the fucking sport, you know, smile and shit, go to class. And, you know, I did all of that stuff. But I also wanted to use my art to kind of like critique the craziness that I was experiencing. And um I did that, you know, I mean, and the weird thing is, like, you know, had I not gotten kicked out of school, I regret a lot of that stuff. But, you know, I, sometimes I wonder would I be here because that that stuff was very formative. And like, it's something that I've revised often in my work, you know, so like I wrote that essay, how to You kill yourself and others in America. And then one of the things I didn't do in that essay was I didn't give the subjectivity of the character who was my partner much breath at all Mm. um so i told a portion of the truth but i also lied because i knew what she experienced and then i was like all right you got to revise that so when i wrote heavy i wanted our relationship to kind of be the center not like the expulsion and not like the guns and all that kind of stuff because i already done that you know and hopefully not have people be like i already read this
2: shit you know like i already know what's gonna happen you know (laughs) well that was what was fun about (laughs) Uh, listening to the memoir first, and then going back and reading a lot of essays. I'd read some of your work I'd come across at different times, but then seeing pieces of it is fascinating to see that it pops up in all these places. But actually, this is the, the place where it all sort of comes together. Absolutely. But you also, I feel like that idea, that revision idea, the idea that you go back to these stories or your life or things that happened to you and look at them again... And try to understand them a different way or try to figure out what the lie was right. that you were telling the first time. Right. Where did that come from in your life? Where did you learn how to do that?
3: I mean, I wish it was complicated, but my mom. And if I didn't do it, you know, I, I got whoopings and I got beatings. If I didn't, you know, I tried to revise for years, but I just didn't even understand the concept. Do you know what I'm saying? But my mother was the one who made me. She literally was like, you know, uh, a pointed question like you know working your text to get a great question is much more important than like a cliched answer she said that shit to me when i was like five or six i didn't know what she was talking about but that's true you know what i'm saying it's, it is much more important i think to get like a pointed question or two as opposed to like a fluffy you know milk toast cliched answer so she she really pushed me and forced me and then you know i started reading baldwin and i started doing reading a lot of bell hooks and i realized that at the root of all of that shit, like, was a desire for like revision, not just individual re- revision, but like a communal and ultimately like a structural kind of revision, which necessitates first, honestly assessing the situation so you can see what needs to be revised. And I just think that's the part we aren't really great at as human beings. We're definitely not Americans, right? Like we don't honestly describe our situation. So then it makes it hard to like effectively revise anything. You know what I'm saying? So I got it from my mama, probably somehow I'm sure from like my grandmother's understanding
2: of like radical Christianity and then from bell hooks and, and Baldwin specifically it's interesting you mentioned bell hooks because another example that I think is in the essay collection you have an essay about misogyny right and you write in there about you know reading bell hooks reading other feminists and even being a women's studies right. major and understanding that material and then kind of I don't know, deploying it yeah. in a way uh, yeah. to your advantage Right, sort of how you describe it. I'm not doing it justice, but, um, and then revisiting that, Right. I'm interested in how you get below that first layer. I think a lot of people, myself included, get to that first part where they, they want to be able to tell everyone that they <laughs> did something, <Right. laughs> that they know something, that they're aware of something. Yeah. But how did you get to that second part where you say, actually, no, the only reason I was doing that was for my own advantage. I wasn't actually understanding.
3: Yeah. I think it's tough because I mean, the easy answer is that when your work is being looked at by, I think the most important black feminists in the world, one, you can't pat yourself on the back for coming to easy conclusions because your people, your friends who are some of the most important black feminists in the world are going to call you out. So I'm saying like one way actually like move beyond just like congratulating myself for learning vocabulary was the fact that like black feminism and black feminist were not going to have that shit. Right. They weren't going to be okay. great. You know what misogyny means. Good for you. You know, so I think part of it is like centering the people who offer sometimes the most abrasive, but also the most like really damning critiques of yourself, like you got to put them at the center of your art. Like that means you can't hide from people who are going to be like, you know, the practice of any sort of like feminist ideology is much more important than like, you know, the theory alone. And the thing is just like race, you know, like knowing the theory can not just deflect, but also can let people put their guard down and, and be like, oh, like, you know, he or she or they are one of the good ones, quote unquote. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it is definitely retrospectively. I was like, oh, the few women who actually did like me seem to like me. Partially because I liked feminism, or I knew the language of feminism, but you know, once you go beyond knowing the language of feminism, the question still has to be like, how do you divest from investing like so fully in, in cis heteropatriarchy in every single thing in your life? And I feel like if you don't admit that you fail much more than you succeed you gonna fail and you gonna hurt people and I think most of us do that and I failed and I hurt people and some people hurt me um but I really hurt people who I hurt a person who would never have hurt me and I know part of it was because um this person thought they were safe because of some of the language and shit I deployed and some of the you know clever phraseology and just like ethereal talk of like radical love but it doesn't really have any legs in real life like you know great for me if i guess for uh, wanting to feel connected much more to you know what the role misogyny had in creating me but you know if you use that shit to harm people who are vulnerable
2: you're worse than somebody who didn't know it in the first place mm-hmm. i think well do you ever think about this is uh, this is going to come out wrong cuz i'm not i'm not implying that this is your problem or your fault but that there might be people that are now using your book in the same way not the same specific way right. but people using it as a as a shield in a way
3: I, I mean you know that's the thing about any question
2: about people the answer's got
3: to be yes yeah. somebody out somebody, there yeah. somebody out there i'm sure is using that book as a shield to give the impression that they've done some sort of Emotional, cultural, social, political work, and you know, I don't want that to be the case. I want that to be a book that is really begging us to really consider the limits and lengths of like our ability to love. Like, so I'm interested in all of the differences and people have, but like, I'm interested in like how we fail at loving the people we love, and what that failure actually does to our body, to our body politic, and that. And so. But yeah, I'm sure people are using that book to like, like I'm sure there's gonna be some dude using that book somewhere, you know. That's the thing about boys, bro. Like if if women just love pineapples, you know, like motherfuckers is gonna like become pineapple connoisseurs the next day, like to get closer to women, you know. So if I if there are any women out in the world who like heavy, it's gonna be a motherfucker using heavy <laughs> to get closer to that woman for sure. At least one. <laughs>
2: Hundred. <laughs> All right, so let's go back a little bit. So, because we were starting to just move through the, your early career a little bit. So you went to Millsaps, and then yeah. that incident took place. You got kicked out. You ended up Jackson State for a little yeah. bit, and then you ended up at Omerlin. Omerlin, yeah. And so, at that point in your, were you interested in pursuing a life of academics and writing? Was that where you mm. sort of dreamed you would end up at that stage? So in your that,
3: that that this is in the mid '90s when like hip hop journalism was still a thing. So, like, my dream at that point, when I by the time I got to Oberlin, I didn't even dream about writing books. I just wanted to write for The Source. I wanted to write for XXL, which came out a few years later. This guy who went to Oberlin, uh, Rob Marriott, uh, helped start XXL. This incredible writer at the time, William Upski, whimsat, Billy, was also writing for The Source and stuff. So I just wanted to write. I just wanted to be a hip-hop journalist. Hmm. And, and part of that was because, uh, again, like... Um, this young brother name well he was he was older than me but he was named Charlie Braxton he was from Jackson and he was writing for The Source and he you know he was one of the first people to like you know review uh, ATLians and he was one of the first people you know he stopped Reasonable Doubt from getting five mics and because he thought it was you know sort of uncritically misogynist and Charlie was somebody who I was like oh yo we from down here can not only rap if we want to but we can write about this for a living so I just wanted to be a hip hop journalist and then there was this dude named Calvin Hurton who somebody had told me to go to Oberlin to study with, who was an amazing writer. And, uh, and he encouraged me to apply to this thing called the Mellon um, Grant, which was for like undergraduate research. And so my mom was a professor. But for some reason, I always just thought of her as a teacher. You know, And so I didn't even understand the difference. And so when I did that Mellon, I was like, yo, I want to be a teacher like my mom now. So I got to shadow some professors on college campuses and I just got to really dig into Morrison a lot and playing in the dark was out at that time and I was like I really want to be a teacher and you know who can maybe write books and I had never taken a creative writing class but again I was writing lots of essays and at that point I didn't know you could go to creative writing school for nonfiction. I thought you had to go for fiction and poetry so I applied to some fiction programs and I applied to some PhD programs in English and. One of them I got into was Indiana University. Yusef Kumiaka was there. He was an incredible poet at the time. And they were the first ones who called me. So I was just like, okay, I'll come. And that was it. But I still have never taken a creative writing class, even though I teach them. But that's another regret I had. Like, I wish I would have taken creative writing at Oberlin. That would have helped. Definitely would have helped me a lot. It seems like it worked out. I mean, I think it could have worked out a little
2: faster, (laughs) bro, to tell you the truth. If I like. <laughs> if I had one or two classes, I think it would have helped a lot. So, when you then you ended up at Vassar after that, teaching at Vassar after, as a professor, uh, yeah. And when you were saying writing essays, were you sending those out, like submitting nah. those, or were you writing them more for yourself? For
3: well, I stopped writing essays between like 1997 and probably like 2004 or so, I just was focusing on fiction, yeah, and then after like uh a few different publishers had the book and you know i got some money for the book and you know was was one publisher was ultimately like you got to take the racial politics out of the book then it became clear to me like this book wasn't going to come out when i thought it was going to come out so then i was just like let me just go back to trying to write these essays and trying to write this book and i started trying to write this book to my uncle jimmy and he was getting sick so I tried to write it to him before he died but he died before the book was over and then that book ended up being how to solo kill yourself and others in America but I started writing that because I was just sick of what I felt like was like sort of like industry neglect or something for the book you know what I'm saying like the my book was it was messy but you know when when somebody buys your book and then they tell you to take the racial politics out of your book when racial politics are like really important to you and America. <laughs> America. Yeah, it could just feel it could it just hurt. So I was just like, I'm gonna try to do this other book now
2: and um How and did it, they say that when they say that? Did they just say it like they that? Said it. Take the racial politics. I
3: wrote out. an essay called Um You Are the Second Person and I had to change a lot of things to try to make, you know, a lot of people not as known as they are, but the quotes that I use in this essay, uh, which are like, you know, coming from person and people who bought my book those are quotes from the emails like take the racial politics out of the book you know the only way people are gonna buy this book is if you can appeal to librarians the percy carter audience that's who you should be writing to you don't have the right to write about katrina like these are like quotes those are quotes
2: from editors some editor in new york is from telling editors you who you had don't have to write
3: <laughs> that's a but it's not you know you want to say that to me that's fine yeah. but the editors had bought the book and you know i was like a young writer who was just like anything they told me, I would try to do it. You know, like most young writers, like if you tell me you want me to move the fucking book out of Mississippi, I'll try You want me to, you know, change like these two kind of shared consciousness narrators and change them into one? I'll try that. You want me to take the racial politics out of the book? I actually might try that, but then when I think about it and wake up in the morning, I'm going to have to be like, hell no, you know, and that's what happened. And um, so anyway, I ended up giving them the advance back and I was just like, fuck it, I'm out here now, what am I gonna do, and um, luckily, you know, Jesmyn had just published Where the Line Bleeds a year earlier at Agate, so one of my friends was like, you should just send it to Agate, because if they got Jesmyn's work, they might get yours, and so I sent them three books, and they turned two of those books into Long Division, and one of those books they turned into
2: um, the essay collection house, So I'll Kill Yourself. And, it's uh, not every day someone shows up with three books. At I lunch.
3: know. I sent that shit, like, Thursday night. I mean, I did that dude a favor, though. I'm going to say that shit loud <laughs> now. It's the truth. But, yeah, I sent it to him, like, Thursday night. And I think, like, Monday or Friday, he was like, yeah, let's do it. But um, he wanted to do it a little differently. And, you know, you sign with those little independent pressures, you know, you don't get much money for those. I think
2: I got, like, four or $5,000 or something like that. But,
3: yeah, so that's all I got here.
2: And then... After that, you were selling essays and and doing even yeah. I don't know if you would call it reported stories, yeah. but you are doing you did stories for ESPN yeah. where you about. I love the one about the the kid who never who's trying to make it to the NBA. But he, DeAndre, that's, yeah. that's one
3: of my favorite pieces, man. That's one of my favorite pieces. Like, There's a I moment in there piece.
2: where he says you think ESPN's going to run this? Because I didn't make it to the NBA. Right. And you say, well, it's about dreams. Right. And it is. Yeah, the story's about. (laughs) He's playing in Mongolia.
3: Right. He was literally in Mongolia. (laughs) Literally. But the crazy thing about that was like, man, you know, this dude, this was a kid when I met, when I first moved to Poughkeepsie. You know, I saw him grow up. I met him when he was 16. And by the time he goes to play professionally, I think he's like 24, 25, something like that. And... We were friends, but he looked at me like I was no matter what I was, no matter what conversations we had, like I was always the professor. So he assumed like professors also had like some sort of mobility that he didn't. And I did. Right. Like when police stopped me and fuck with me, I could pull out a Vassar College ID, which one could argue could defend myself, help defend myself as opposed to being stopped and not having anything. Right. But DeAndre, by the time DeAndre is like twenty eight, I mean, he's been all over the world. And I remember, like, I literally had been, I didn't have a fucking passport. That's what was so crazy. Like, I'm a professor, you know, I'm I'm balling and shit. Everybody, like, yo, the professor, blah, blah, blah. DeAndre would be like, man, I think I'm going to go play in Mongolia. You been there? And I'd be like, motherfucker, I've been to Mexico, (laughs) I've been to Canada, I got a passport to go to Puerto Rico, and then my friend was like, yo, Puerto Rico's a fucking, uh, what do you call it? (laughs)
2: Like a territory.
3: A territory, because you don't need no passport. So then I didn't get a stamp, but then I went to Jamaica and got my first stamp. But anyway, I just thought, I mean, that story is interesting to me for lots of reasons, but one of them is like the way mobility works out in that piece, right? Like he's, this is a dude, you know, who doesn't have college education, but he's got like 50 fucking stamps. And I'm not saying that like stamps equate like, like should be lauded, but I think it's really interesting the way like, This young man used basketball to see the world. And here I am as a writer who sees the world in a different way, but I didn't have the sort of mobility that he assumed I had. And I was embarrassed about that.
2: Yeah, and he was viewed by some conventional measures as a failure. Yeah, that's right. He was telling you, no. Right. I'm
3: doing it. He's like, I'm living my dream. You know, like, and that's, yeah, and that's the thing I think about a lot of times, like, particularly black boys in basketball, like, we all had massive dreams about like wanting to be the best. And like, yeah, we need to talk about why some of us only dream that way. But what I love about that shit is like, what does it mean that across this country, like hundreds of thousands of black boys and black girls now are trying to be the best at something. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know young writers who aren't even trying to be the best at writing. Like they're trying to be like, you know, get their books published, but you know, I just I just think sometimes we don't think about like the ways like people who kind of seem sort of illegible to people actually like are dreaming far beyond what most of us even think possible. Mm-hmm. You know, DeAndre to this day still thinks he gonna make it to the NBA. He's too old. He ain't making it to no fucking NBA ever. I was trying to say that I was I was a hater. I was being a hater in that thing. I was like, I was trying to say as nicely as I can, fam, like you are not going there, like try to do something else. But he was just like, I'm dreaming. I'm doing what, you know, you you in class teaching all these white kids every day, trying to encourage them to dream. Fuck, I'm dreaming, you know? So he was right, you know? And I think I was right. I do think you can have multiple dreams. I think you can dream twice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe when he finally runs out of options, right. they, he'll come up with that. <laughs> right, that's true. So you mentioned being in Poughkeepsie at that time, and you, you wrote about that. And when I read some of those essays, like you wrote an essay for Gawker about the ID, actually, the Vassar ID, and then... There's part of me that wondered, like, how did your employers take that? Like, you're not, like, pulling punches when it comes to what no, it was like to be there.
3: They weren't too happy with that, <laughs> that piece. But, yeah, that was. I think I regret writing that piece, fam. Like, I just was, uh, I was just in it deep with, like, the administration at that institution. And honestly, you know, <laughs> I did a thing in Portland last year. So I, I, I tried some edibles, and the edibles have been helping me sleep whenever I'm in states where they're legal mm-hmm. um, and I'm just like yo if I just would have just had a gummy back then I would have never written that shit and that piece reached millions of people you know but and it was written out of something that needed to be written about like I wrote it because black little black boys had gone into the library at Vassar with backpacks and and Security got called, and then security called police on these black boys. And then the following day, police officers went to the school of one of the black boys and told the black boy never to come back to Vasa. These are little fucking kids. And part of this is like, I got kicked out of school for taking a book out of the library. Yeah, right? Part of it is that. Yeah. Absolutely. But I also just was like, yo, this is the fi- I mean, like, it is so blatant. Like, you know, you're driving police cars up on the lawn to presumably arrest little black boys who have backpacks, who don't go to Vassar like that should be wrong to everybody. And because people didn't find it as wrong as I thought they should have. I just went ham and I did what I've been doing my whole life, which is like when I get sort of not so happy, I start trying to create some sort of art to deal with it. And um, I just wish I would. have dealt with that situation a little differently i mean i, I probably should have written some but I maybe should have written something different than what i wrote i'm not saying that because of the backlash but it just made it very hard for me to be in that space post that article mm. you know, in explicit ways oh of course man yeah. like i mean i'm yeah i yeah. mean they they had lots of meetings about you know that article was a big deal at that institution and, and, and it went you know it's it was some people's face of Vasa. It was some people's in this country like, oh, that's Vasa. Like I might not go there. Blah 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 blah. You know, what I mean? and that's something we can talk about or not. But yeah, if I could do it all over again, I, I would write something. But I, I mean, you can see the beginning of heavy actually in that in, yeah. that, in that essay. But it was, uh, it was the first time I'd actually talked about gambling addiction, so I needed to do that. Um, but you know, man, like with this book heavy, like I felt okay putting it out in the world when I could say. I wasn't trying to hurt my mom. I wasn't trying to hurt Vassar. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody in the world with this book. I was trying to love and care and work through shit. Like, and I didn't feel comfortable putting the book out until I could be like, there's no resentment in my heart for, her. but I published that essay. It was so much resentment in my heart for for that institution. And I was trying to hurt them. I don't really think you should, you should create art out of like that. But I don't think you should put art out in the world when you know part of what you're trying to do is hurt. Even if you're right. <sighs> I don't know that I was all the way right, man. I mean, I was right about administration and the way that administration, I think, neglected, like, intentionally neglected, like, black kids. But there were people on that in, in that institution who had been doing lots of work to make sure what happened in that library didn't happen, and they didn't really get even, like, a paragraph. Do you know what I'm saying? See, yes. Like, it reads almost as if, like... This stuff had happened and there aren't like, you know, committed groups of faculty and people from the community and students who have been fighting this forever. Like you can read it that way because of the way I wrote it, because I was really trying to, you know, shake them into fucking finally doing something. And they did some, you know, performative work like these institutions often do. But ultimately, I I regret writing parts of that piece the way I did, you know, uh, I mean, it helped get me too heavy, but. It was just, it was, it. I wasn't thinking through it all, bro I was I was, I was, was kind of fucked up, I was kind of crazy I needed to, I just needed to chill the fuck out, fam Like, in my lifetime, like, even at Millsaps Like, retrospectively, I just wish I just would've I mean, I just wish somebody would've been like Fam, you just need to smoke weed or something just for a second Cause you care too much
2: And I did, I did, I did care way too much well the, you mentioned some of the seeds of heavy being you know in that essay and, right. and obviously in other essays i'm a, a little bit interested in the process of you know one of the things that makes a book incredible is the dialogue and the details and what mm-hmm. you capture mm-hmm. did you go back i know you went back and talked to your mom and your yeah. and grandma about it but did you go back to other people was there a process where you went to everyone and said Hey, I want to revisit this with you so I can. Yeah, get the yeah. The
3: revisitation and the revision for me is like one, it necessitates an initial vision. And the initial vision, again, like I talked about with this other book, but even in that book, I had to spend a lot of physical time in these spaces. So not only did I talk to my friends and ask them what their bodies remember during this memory like I had to go to parking lots where I, we frequented or go into houses that we used to be in going to backyards where pools used to be and try to ask myself what I felt like to me this book is also just like a attempt at sort of braiding tenses so I, I wrote the first draft in present tense. I had to write in present tense to try to get the memories right. Then I tried to write in like a a future kind of tense. And then I wrote it in past, which was the easier one. But then like ultimately you have three versions of it. And you have to braid them all together in ways that feel, hopefully in ways where like Morrison says, like the language doesn't sweat. You you can't really see my hand up in there. But if you look through it, like, you know, the tenses shift at, you know, sort of interesting times. So yeah, so part of that all came from talking to actual people who were there with me. And in situations where I could not talk to people or did not talk to people, but tried to put them in there anyway, there were a few times that people reached out to me and were like, you know, I don't want to be. I hear you writing this book. Don't put me in it. You know, you've done enough (laughs) damage to me. Keep me out of the book. Did you did you heed that when they? Yes, absolutely. 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 (laughs) And then thought a lot about why I thought the right thing to do before was to like put some of these folks in the book right like you know you gotta think real, real hard about that kind of stuff so that doesn't mean everybody who is in the book is happy with how they're rendered you know what i'm saying but mm. but most of people that see themselves in the book i think see themselves which is what our job should be you have
2: your mom's response right uh, on your website yeah it was gonna it was be just... in the
3: book and then last second um uh, my mom and editor and me i i we we all decided it didn't really belong there
2: yeah. Yeah. Was there any point, I mean, you write about sexual violence, you write about things that are just, they're not just personal, they're self-examining in this way that, were there points where you ever doubted putting that out in the world? Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
3: really close to when it was due that I was like, all uh. right. I can't put it out because it looked different than what y'all saw. You know, it it had a lot more things in it that like I could have got arrested for people I know could have got arrested for or, you know, there was just a lot of other things in that book initially that the stakes would have been a lot higher for a lot of us. And, you know, nobody wants to go to jail. Everybody wants to keep a job. You know what I'm saying? But then... Then the lawyers from Scribner go through and they're like, OK, we got to take this out. We got to take this out. We got to move this around. You have to make a composite. It is this can't go. And then I gave it to my mom one more time. And then my mom was like, all right, key." I really want you to take this out. I really want you. And then so then you have to go back in there again as an artist and be like, OK, so how can I make it still cohere and really make all that shit that y'all don't want in the book percolate as like some sort of subtext. And so, you know, you have to move shit around and hope that the subtext can carry the day and that people can feel that there's sometimes some stuff that's being hinted at that's not being explained. And I think I do that a few times. Well, and a few other times I don't do it so well, but. That's what I was trying to do.
2: And when you're doing that, this is a question I know you've been asked a million times, but do you have an audience in mind?
3: I mean, the first person literally is my mama. Like, really? my, my mama is the first reader. The second, third, fourth, fifth readers are, like, real talk, like Jasmine Ward, I'm imagining, I'm hoping that Bell Hooks, who I know has a book and likes the book, thank God, now. Like, I was hoping Bell Hooks would see some of her influence in the book. Dream Hampton was somebody I looked up to a lot as a young writer coming up. And I wanted dream Hampton to fill the book. Imani Perry is the most important intellectual like in my life. I wanted her to fill the book. And then like just my region, you know what I'm saying? Like my region and sort of my like writerly contemporaries. I wanted them to look at the text and be like, oh, shit, like, yes, they did something sort of dope. And then of course, you know, you want I had like writing teachers who told me I wasn't gonna be shit. You know, like I love I love the negative inspiration more than the positive to tell you the truth. Like like, you know, I'm I, I mean yeah, this book too is written to some of those fucking editors who were talking that crazy shit to me when I was trying to come up and, and they were just pretty much like, No, you know, like you can't <laughs> we don't believe in you. But anyway, whatever dude. Like it's all good right now. I'm here. <laughs> But to me, all of those people get... They take turns being the front row audience for the day. Whatever it takes to get through my writing routine for the day. And sometimes it takes changing the audience.
2: And then, did you have a moment when it landed where you thought, oh, shit, like, I guess you had your mom read it, you had people read it before it came out. But I'm just... I've never written something like this, Mm -hmm. that's self-examining in this way. And so I'm just interested in the feeling of starting to see it appear places, you know? I mean people talking about it the hard part is
3: like i'm a teacher and so i literally have to put my body in front of a classroom all the time and you know when we were students this was different different time the internet wasn't popping like it really is but we still had a lot to say about our teachers and speculated a lot and so i kept i started to think i was like damn what if one of my teachers wrote a book like this like would it make it harder or easier for me to learn from that person so that was the main thing that i was like not sure about. And I'm still honestly not sure about it. Right. Like it's one thing to like write this book in the world and know you might read it or know like my mama's friends might read it or know like Boos Riley might read it. But then to think, you know, like your students or potential people who might not be your students are gonna look at this book and decide really about the integrity of what you're trying to teach them, whether or not they will even want to be taught based on it. So I worried a lot about how it would impact the way my students viewed me. And it just came out so it's too soon for me to really know mm-hmm. but that's the main thing I was really worried about
2: yeah I mean one of the things from like reading it it just felt like I, I did wonder if it was like meant for me like there's a right. difference between like gawking at something yep. and like processing something that you're right. reading and it was very overwhelming sometimes to right. read it but then I had other times where I thought not that it's not right for me to read this, right. but like this was not meant for me and I'm getting the opportunity to look in on something that I shouldn't Yeah, well, that's,
3: that's part of the read. I mean, that's part of like the consumptive experience, right? Like we all take turns consuming shit that is not for us. And so, or it's not primarily for us. So like my attempt when writing this book was I attempting, you know, like if I just see you on the street, I'm like, you know, that looks like a cis white dude. I would never have known you were from Atlanta. I would assume you were from Brooklyn. You know, am I writing to like traditional cis right probably politically left-leading white dudes, they don't really ever get the front row of my audience in this book, but, like, I know that they're watching. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, like, I'm also trying to talk about, like, the politics of watching, right? The politics of consuming shit that's not necessarily for you. And I just think we talk about readerly, writerly dynamic sort of all feel out about, you know what I mean? Because like, I read a ton of shit that's not primarily for me. Most of the, you know, comic strips, cartoons. But I hear tons of songs that definitely weren't thinking about me Lots of my friends, black as fuck, love Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. You can't tell me that shit was made with us in mind, or maybe it was, I don't fucking know. You make some arguments, I'm not sure I can write a paper about that or something, but we find value in shit that wasn't necessarily built for us. But I think politically, and I think, you know, as a project, I think black and brown writers have to think a lot about what it means to, like, decenter the people and the power we've been taught to center in the writerly process. And it's hard because even if you figure out a way to do that in your practice, the reality of it is like somebody who looks like you actually the father, somebody who looks like your father runs CBS, which owns Simon & Schuster, which owns Scribner. So I can not directly address white men, particularly white wealthy men, but white wealthy men sadly have a lot of hands. And whether or not my shit gets out, whether or not I get lots of <laughs> publicity for the book, whether it gets pushed the right way. They don't completely dictate, but their hands are in there. Yeah. So I'm saying that's the difference, right? So like when you write a book, you don't have to really worry about like what black people with power are gonna do with your book. Who knows what the fuck they're gonna do with the book? They don't exist. We don't exist like in mass in the literary community in this country. So I think it's like a blessing that we're able to think about all of these different audiences. But also, I just think it's liberatory to focus on an audience that is different than the audience we were taught to write to our entire lives. And for me, that's what I tried to do. Like my mom, it's ironic to me that my mama was the woman who taught me how to read. She was a black woman who taught me how to read and write. And in everything I wrote outside of my house, I was taught not to write to my mama. I just think, like, that's where we are as black writers and black creators in this country. I mean, literally, because most of our teachers are white. Right. Our principals are white. The standards are white. But I wanted to flip that on its head and be like, I'm going to write this book to the person who taught me how to read and write. And yeah, we got some dysfunctional, fucked up shit going on, but we also have, like, some abundant love shit going on too
2: and just hope people can fall into it where they can. That's what I was trying to do. And did you feel like you got it through that gauntlet? Like, the gauntlet where the white hands are grabbing at it that it got to the other end as what you wanted
3: yeah because that's what i'm trying to say like there's something sub- yes i mean there's subtext fam like you know people will read this book all right when i wrote this book i never expected people to say oh my god is your mother alive right like but white people continually say that to me they're like when i got to the end and i realized your mother was alive i didn't know what to do and i was like what the fuck you talking about and he's like like how could you write this when your mom's alive and i was just like that's the point (laughs) that was the point of that shit like that was the point right like how do you do this when your mom's alive and you alive like so for them they read this book where like through the whole book here's this kid writing about his mom who's passed and,
2: and it's like suspense like when she yeah i'm
3: not trying to like isolate all white readers into <laughs> one glob fair but enough. Also, i'm sure i thought but, that but also, <laughs> but also lots of black folks who i know who read the book are just like i just kept thinking over and over again what is his mama thinking right now what is she thinking you know those are two completely different responses
2: well you talk you uh you wrote this essay about um michelle obama yeah. that was in vanity fair and it talks about Speaking in lower frequencies, right, and that, that's sort of what you're describing. I in mean, some that's sense.
3: it. I mean, I think that's the. More, I mean, you know, like I think that's the. I think that was the illest thing. Ellison ever wrote when he talks start talking about like who knows what, but when on lower frequencies I speak for you when he ends Invisible Man, like, yeah, those lower frequencies exist. They we can act like they don't, but you know the signifying like the private transcripts. Like, there's a lot. There's a book within a book within a book, and that's what I write about. Like I write black books about black books. Like long division is about the making of black books. This book really is about like the making of a black book. Um, How to solo kill yourself and others is also a lots and lots about like black boys and black bodies and black children and black books. And so if you really take books seriously, we know that there's all these registers and, you know, like somebody who wrote read the book, I guess, or read parts of the book, decided to put my fucking face (laughs) on a lamppost in Brooklyn. I never anticipated that reader, right? But somehow, some register, that reader got something from it and decided to to do that. Or maybe somebody was... You know, who knows why that, why that ended up there, but, like, well, that's what I love about the writing and readerly process. It's like, you just never know. I never know what the fuck I'm gonna write, but I definitely never know how people are gonna react to it. Never. Yeah. Ever. And that's sort of amazing.
2: I have one more question on this kind of bent, which is, do white people ask you for, or approach you for, like, absolution. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
3: Well, they did a lot with How to Slowly Kill Yourself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, quote-unquote, well-meaning white people. On book tours, usually older, well-meaning white people, they want you to know they voted for Obama. They want you to know they will vote for Obama again. They want you to know sometimes that the people who raised them and washed their clothes and took care of them were black women and they want you to, I think say like, I understand it's okay. I'm just the wrong person for that regardless of race. Cause I don't feel like it is okay unless we make it okay. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I don't feel like shit is nothing is going to be okay. Everything is going to be more fucked up than it is unless we like double down on trying to make it not fucked up everything in this country. So I just can't give anybody absolution. Like not even myself. I mean, that book is about, like the baiting of absolution over and over again. Here you go. Here you go. And you taking it out from people. So I just think it's about like committing to work, but I, I know that was uh, that's like what that's like. Like, you know, I'm writing this, this word, working on this essay now. And like, um, I was thinking about one of the most hurtful things somebody ever said to me was, this woman called me a man and I was, she, and she was just like, you're just a man. And I was like, but, 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 but what? you're just like a man. You're just like a man. And I just want to be like, but I'm, you know what the fuck can you say? But like, you know, like, you know, cause I want, what I want you to tell me is I'm a special man. I'm not like the other man. And, and she's like, no, you're a fucking man, dude. You are a man. That shit hurt me so much. Why? Cause it was true. And what I wanted her to tell me was that like, I'm a man who's trying, who's doing the work, who one day will blah, blah, blah blah, blah And why do I want that person to say that shit? So I cannot fucking work on being better today. Cause I got the sanction from somebody who knows yesterday. So I love when white folk come and talk to me, but I'm never giving white people some old absolution because I don't I don't I'm not giving myself any.
2: So I mean heavy has gotten this like critical and as far as I can talk commercial success. It's just everywhere. And are you you're still teaching, you're teaching at University of mm-hmm. Mississippi now. Mm-hmm. And cause your trajectory now change in terms of what you're working on or what you want to do next? Like do you feel like it's shaping that success is shaping where uh, you're going or you're I think it should I think it should shape.
3: Yeah. You know, I've I've taught every semester in my life since I was twenty three, going on twenty four. So I've never taken a semester off of teaching since since then, I've just taught. Even when I earned leaves at Vassar, I felt like I still needed to be teaching because I, I felt like that was too cushy of a job or something. So I know what the healthiest thing for me to do would be, like, next year, the year after, be like, all right, can't say, maybe take some time off from teaching, just focus on um, this new novel, just focus on this new sort of form you're trying to work on, like, non-fictive form, maybe, you know, just work on, like, some television writing you're trying to do. That's what I know I should do, but it's hard for me to not teach. But I know that I'd be better as a writer if I didn't teach. Um, But, you know, also the thing is, you know, when I came to Mississippi, I had other jobs. Like I could have gone to like really prominent schools on the West Coast, really prominent schools on the East Coast. But I went home for a lot of reasons, too. Like I wanted people to understand that like Mississippi doesn't need to be a place you perpetually run away from. Sometimes we need to run to Mississippi in order to create dope shit. And so I didn't just like finish that book in Mississippi. Like I sort of wrote the draft that people see in Mississippi, you know what I mean? Like, which means I really thoroughly revised that book in Mississippi. So I'm in Mississippi now. I actually think I probably need to leave Mississippi for a little while just to get my bearings, man. You know, I'm in the middle of all of this right now. It's hard to see out of it, but I think I just need to go somewhere and just get maybe close to an ocean or some shit or just get, I just need something. I need to get, I need to get any, or a dog or some shit. I just need something to get like some, some balance right now. Cause I don't know. I don't have like the most balance right now. Cause everything is just coming. Everything is just coming so fast. Uh, but I'm super lucky that it's coming at all. Cause we know how that is, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm still that writer who like never expects anybody to read anything. I write. Cause that's who we all are. You know, you push it out there and nobody give a fuck. And so whenever anybody cares, I'm still just weirded out. I mean I don't know about you but I'm I'm super weirded out when people read my stuff.
2: Yeah, but I I think you always imagine there's some you would get to some point where enough people praised it right. or, or it hit the right audience or it did right. it what you wanted it to do that you would then the next time you sat down, you would feel, you just be full of confidence that you would do it again. Yes. But then the bar just, just <laughs> shit. It, Right,
3: right. It's just moving around. It just keeps moving.
2: Yeah. That's and there's right. a you can always find some negative thing too. Like you, I'm really you good at believe that. that your second to last chapter is not oh, yeah. strong, that's which is. Right. But that's
3: good though, because I can't fix it, but I can fix it in the next book. So that's, that's what helps.
2: That helps me to look at it and see the obvious failures in it. Well. I hope you'll come back again. Absolutely. I hope you'll, next time you got something, anything, or if you're in town, just come by.
1: Thank y'all
3: for I could talk all all day. Thank y'all for um, taking work so seriously and talking about like, uh, like the creases in it that most people just don't see or find value
2: in. I appreciate that. Lucky to have you on. The book is amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Uh, Thanks to Kiese for stopping in the studio. I really cannot recommend this book uh, more highly heavy. If you haven't read it, you should go out and read it and think about it. Uh, My co-hosts for the Long Form Podcast are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. And our sponsors are Pit Writers and MailChimp. We'll see you next week.